Get ready to rock radio, music you want to hear. We're saying hello to uh, someone we've been trying to track down for longer than uh, we care to remember, really. Hello to Andy Latimer from Camel. Nice to have you uh, talking to us here at Get Ready to Rock. Yeah, um, nice to be here. Oh, it's great. Now, let's turn the clock back slightly to last October. Um, your uh, dates in the UK then, you played several dates, and you the reaction, it must have exceeded your expectations. Oh, absolutely. It was um, actually quite overwhelming, Dave. Um, <laughs> the, the, the response was just uh, amazing. Uh, you know, we, we, it's always a great surprise to me when we tour because we haven't toured for 10 years and so one is always a little bit, oh, you know, concerned that maybe people have forgotten, you know, or <laughs> the tickets won't sell, but we, we, we did a sellout tour. You know, every night when we came on, we had probably a five-minute ovation before we even picked up a guitar. So, I mean, I, I was amazed, actually. I saw your Manchester gig, and uh, as you say, there was like a standing ovation, wasn't there, before you hit the stage? <laughs> well, when we came on, it was just amazing, you know. Now, how did you feel before the gigs, Andy, in terms of being able to get through what was essentially a two-hour set? I mean, it wasn't... You didn't skimp at all, and uh, you're such an integral part of the band. You play flute, guitar, vocals. I mean, it's not like you can actually leave the stage for a bit, is it? So did you have any, you know, apprehension before that tour? I did. I had quite a lot, actually. You know, I was very anxious about whether I could do it again, you know, just to remember all the parts and being able to play, you know. I mean, of course, I play daily, but it's a different thing when you play in front of somebody and uh, the show itself, as you say, was quite uh, long for me. Um, I did have concerns about my knee because I have a bad knee, which is just an aging thing, unfortunately. Um, so a bit concerned about that and my hands because uh, I, I suffer with arthritis in my hands, you know, so... Um, a lot to take on board you know I was worried that I perhaps couldn't perform so um, but it all went well you know with the help of a few painkillers I got through the shows so but yes a a little bit um, anxious yes well I mean it was a marvellous achievement and it must be a real uh, a personal achievement for you I would have thought now, let's turn right back uh, to the early 70s because Camel was really at the forefront of what we might call progressive rock at that time. You signed to uh, to Decca in uh, around about 1972. You know, we signed originally to MCA. Then MCA uh, got a big shake-up after our first album and they sacked a, you know whole bunch of people and brought a whole bunch of new people in and these people were trying to revamp the label and saw us as old hat really I think and people like Stackridge and you know a lot of people got sort of let go really we, we, we the contract was such that we, after the first album they could either renew it or not and they didn't so then we went to Decca and that was when we did Mirage. Mirage was the first album for Decca. Because you remain with Decca then for most of the decade, well, well, all the, dec- all the decade. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, did the I mean, presumably you got uh, good label support during that period, and it enabled you to perhaps be more adventurous both in the recording and live, you know, tours, live performance, and it certainly enabled you to record Snow Goose uh, specifically, Andy, in 1975 with the London Symphony Orchestra. I mean, that that was quite ambitious at that time, wasn't it? It was. There wasn't a lot of bands doing it like there are now and so it was a very very good time for all musicians I think you know in the 70s the industry was not fully grown and so that it was totally based on money and so it was only when they realized that there was more money to be earned that we started getting pressure saying, you know, we need a, a radio-friendly single to sell the album. Um, and so at the early stages, it was fantastic. You know, we, And when we did The Goose, they were really uh, excited about it. I must say, in America, they weren't. Uh, when I can remember sitting at a meeting with the American record company and telling them about the Snow Goose and the look of horror on their faces when I told them that it was one piece of music. There was no breaks. It was like a classical piece. And no singles, no singing, no vocals. They just were horrified. How are we going to sell this in America? You know, we can't play it on the radio. There's no vocals. There's no hits. You know, no great stories just a piece of music and so it wasn't well received in america but um it obviously did very well in europe um, i think people were much more open about then and as i say it was a fantastic time and decca were very uh, supportive and um we did lose that that show that we out of the hall with the London Symphony Orchestra, we did lose a fair amount of money, even though we sold the, the venue out. We were told at the beginning that we would lose five grand, I think, which at that time it seemed like a lot of money. But, you know, we said, oh, sod it, we're going to do it. Rather, you know, the fans deserve it, we deserve it, we're going to do it, whether we lose money or not. And so we did. It was a little bit shaky. We only had one rehearsal with the orchestra. Um, but um, it was something worth doing. And I think all everybody who went there that evening sort of recognised the occasion. Now, uh, you, you've talked uh, about the 70s there um, br- briefly, really, um, Andy, because so much happened during that decade. But is there anything you might have done differently uh, during those years because you, you've actually alluded to the fact that um, Decca ultimately were looking perhaps for shorter tracks and the proverbial hit singles and um, did this cause you a bit of grief in terms of you know record company expectation there was some pressure there in the background well yes it did you know uh, but I think I only gave in and I only gave in a little I don't you know, I, I've always sort of tried my hardest stick to my gun to what I do because I always think if you start to try and manufacture something to sell, especially creatively, it's a bit, it doesn't work. You know, 
you have to write what you feel in your heart and that's it. If it's commercial, then fantastic. If it's not, then it's still fantastic. <laughs> so I, I, we did get an awful lot of pressure and I think I can tell from here was the result of that. That was more, that had more, um, single type material, I think. Yeah, this was I Can See Your House From Here, wasn't it, 1979? Yeah, yeah. And I think it had sort of, that was our attempt at being a little bit more commercial. But, you know, we never really wrote singles. We weren't that commercial, I don't think. And uh, so inevitably we were going to have uh, pressure from the record company, especially people like the publicists for the record company, because they, their job was made so much harder because we were, you know, four, five musicians playing good music and that was it. (laughs) (laughs) We put on a good show and it was, that was it. But we weren't sort of heroin addicts or we'd make our heads bald or wear gold lame suits. There was no real front in the band, you know, there was no real singer to focus on. And so I think... Inevitably, we were we suffered from a lot of pressure. Uh, when we went to America, that was you know, but people wanted to change. Sometimes I I I was so aghast what people were saying to me in the industry. You know, our Janus, our record company, was you know trying to change the band. You know, get different people in, change the image, change the material. You know, and I. In the end, I said, why, why are we, why do you want us? You know, why are we signed to you if you're trying to change us? What is it you like about us? You know, that made you sign us? And it was very interesting, but, um, I, I don't, I think all the stuff we did was a, a journey and it was a learning journey and, some things were successful and some things weren't. I don't really regret much things. There's certain things I regret about, or maybe keeping the original band together, that in hindsight would have probably been better because the four characters in the band then, in the original lineup, um, were quite strong. The characters were fitted. There was Peter and I took care of all the creative stuff, you know, Doug took care of all the business stuff and kept everything going, and Andy well, Andy was Andy and he kept us all amused and gave us a tremendous amount of inspiration from different sorts of music as he was an avid uh, listener of music and he brought a lot of sort of different styles uh, for us to listen to and absorb so, and it was a great lineup. and when Doug left, everybody's roles changed and I think that was uh, Doug, Andy, and myself were in a blues band as a three-piece, and then we uh, we got together with, and it was so uplifting and exciting because Pete was you know, a fantastic Hammond player. He, we just played. He had a Hammond, and that was it. And um, you know, first time we played together, it was, it was just such an uplifting. Uh, sound that we created it was so exciting and you know Pete we talked about it endlessly of course of what to where should we go what should we be called we didn't have a name or anything you know I don't know how we ended up in a progressive scene because 
uh, better for us, really. But, you know, coming from a blues background and then, and Pete, are very blues. How we ended up being progressive, I really don't, probably my fault. <laughs> <laughs> But I think also these changes at this time, you know, sort of back end of the 70s, early 80s, I mean, you've mentioned it there that, uh, I mean, part of this must have been the fact that these, uh, you know, we, you mentioned the uh, the 60s band, which I think was called The Brew, wasn't it? The Brew. Um, you know, these these were your mates, weren't they? They weren't just fellow musicians. You'd grown up with these people. And I think that must have hit you quite hard personally, I would have thought, at that time. You know, um, when suddenly you haven't got these people around you. I think bands, you know, like marriages, you know, they go through a bad period sometimes. And sometimes you come out the other end and sometimes you don't. You know, you get egos that are involved when you're young, you know, and ambitious. And I, I certainly think we all had egos, well, probably still do, but not not as big as what they were in the early days. Um, and there's so many reasons why you fall out. Um, and I don't know whether I need to go into any of them, but uh, it, it's it's unfortunate. And I think sometimes when you don't, realize that when you're young you know like with Doug for example where Andy sort of came to us because he was very much a jazzy drummer where he loved jazz you know he loved anything with a difficult time signature you know he came to me and Peter and said look it's either Doug or me you know you're either I'm I'm leaving or you've got to get rid of Doug because I, I need a better bass player to play with and being a drummer we both Peter and I understood that, and Andy was, in in those days, a, a stronger musician than Doug was. And so, you know, we sided with Andy and let Doug go and got in Richard Sinclair, mm. which was probably not the best move we could have made then. But, you know, you it's all very easy to say these things in hindsight, but, uh, you know, it's you don't realize the value of somebody until they go. You know, you realize that Doug was a, a, a quite a considerable sort of cement in the band. He kept everything together. So, you know, we were only looking at it from a musical point of view, I think, at that stage. It really was kind of the, the stock phrase, he left because of musical differences. <laughs> you know, I still am... I'm um, uh, great friends with Doug, you know, so, you know, we stay in contact. We've been threatening to do a blues album now for 30 years, but whether that will materialise, who knows? Oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But as you say, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't just about the music. He, uh, from what you said earlier, actually, he um, he also handled the business side of things, didn't he? Well, he did, he did and he didn't. Ah. I mean, we had a manager. We had two managers, in fact. But Doug, in the early days, was, you know, because Peter and I always argued. We always had differences from musically, I, I think, most of them. But sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were just live. And uh, Doug used to keep us uh, uh, apart. 
eat, 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 and sort of keep keep the thing going. So he was he was very good, very strong personality. But uh, he he would be the one to say, listen, you know, we've been playing clubs now for x amount of years. You know, it's time we stepped up and started to move into doing I don't know universities. I think was the next stage up then. And so, you know, and then the manager would put that into operation. So Doug had a lot of ideas about stuff. And he was also really supportive of the music. He really liked what Peter and I were doing. But, you know, he came up with the idea of doing the Snow Goose. We're sort of fast-forwarding a bit now, but uh, there was, uh, I mean, basically... Uh, after the album, I think it was the live album, wasn't it? Pressure points that you uh, found yourselves, let's just say, between labels, and uh, the, there was then a seven-year gap between pressure points and the next album, which obviously takes us into the 1990s. And uh, really, we haven't got enough time to go into detail about this, but I mean, you continue to make, um, you know, consistently good albums. I think in that period. Um, I think you were living in the States then, weren't you, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that that makes any difference, really, but it was almost like uh, you were exiled. And <laughs> well, I kind of, you know what, Dave, I, I felt exiled. You know, I after our Decca deal, I managed to talk, because it really did go south, I think, uh, the, the Decca deal, they got taken over by... Universal and Universal, you know, just a huge corporation, and, and they weren't really interested in us. They 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 enjoyed us being on their label because uh, we sold quite a lot of records without them having to do anything. But they never were behind the band. They never, you know, at the later stages, this this was, you know, it, it was just a, a really difficult situation. So I managed to get out of that con one album. Uh, we had to go on that contract, so we were. We, they let us go. They were very uh, generous, um, and then I tried to get a deal um, with a few companies. About three, I tried, and I was so disheartened in the end because they basically said, "You know, you're like a dinosaur, really. You know, nobody's interested in what you're doing. Um, you know, we're not interested either." So. You know, will pass, and so I was extremely, re- you know, dejected um, about the situation, and I, I didn't see a future. And for about a year, I sat around watching telly and being depressed. I think until I decided with Susan, you know, Susan came up with the idea: why don't we start our own company up? And so. You know, we then talked about how we could do that, and we realised it would be a huge gamble. You know, so we sold our house in London, moved to America, where I was regarded as um, with a great deal of respect. You know, people loved the band in small areas of, of America, especially we went to San Francisco. This is where we kind of lived for eighteen years, but. Um, Everybody was very excited and very energetic, and so I could organise things a lot better. Um, but it was a huge, a huge gamble, and something I'd never, you know, to to actually be our own record company and doing our own publicity and selling our own records, and you know, all that was totally new to me because I always thought I had to go into a big studio with a big producer and a 
big record company and you know where I, you know I realized after dust and dreams that I didn't need any of that and it was so liberating to be able to do something that I I didn't have to face any you know any record company individual saying you know we don't like this this is not what we want to do Yes, it, it's almost like for, for 10 years there in the 90s, you've been running things as uh, like a cottage industry, really, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And it, it's, been, it's been very rewarding because, as I say, you, when you go to do, you know, to create some new music, you're, you're creating it for yourself and within, you know, you're not thinking, wow, is this going to sell? How am I going to sell it? Are the fans going to love it? Of course, you know, after you've finished it, you, you're hopeful that people will like it and you will make some money to continue. Um, but, you know, you don't, as I say, you don't have people who are semi-interested in what you're doing and, and trying, you know, not really trying to sell it. Now, we should say also that running parallel um, to your sort of musical activities and relocating to the states and all the rest of it um you did uh contract this this illness in the 1990s but it wasn't and as far as i understand it Andy, it wasn't announced until much later but you evidently had this um it's a like a blood disorder i think isn't it uh from the early 1990s is that right yes i mean i um i got something called polycythemia which means i was producing too many red blood cells and um, I was managing it for. Well, they told me that that, that I could it would it could be uh, continue as it was for about twelve, fifteen years. And so I I was thinking, okay, that seems manageable. So I was managing it, and um, I I was it was fine, you know, for. I don't know how many years, 10 years or so, and then I, I decided I wanted to move back to England because I missed my family and my friends and, you know, being in the hub of things rather than sort of over in, you know, San Francisco area, and I thought, you know, time for me to move back home. And so I moved back home, and after a year of being here, I, because I used to have regular blood checks, um, my disease that was manageable uh, turned into something called myelofibrosis, which was really not manageable. I had type 4, which is the worst you can get, which meant that I wasn't producing. My blood cells uh, were drying up. I wasn't producing any blood. And so they gave me 20 months to live. Um, I was very fortunate in as much as I, I, you know, made the decision to move back to England about a year before I contracted this. So, because it was, you know, much better for me, and I was very lucky to get a place in Bristol where I had a, you know, bone marrow transplant. And yeah, since then I've been stable. Well, it was, it was, it was a very big challenge. You know, um, and I wasn't sure that I was going to come out of it. Uh, you know, I I just had tremendous support from Susan, and also from all, all my friends and family, and an amazing amount of fans. You know, they they 
wrote in and you know i got these when i was in isolation for six weeks you know uh you know i just that sort of kept me going so i think all that positive energy really did aid my recovery and it worked and i got a perfect donor and uh you know at the moment i don't have that disease anymore i'm i'm perfectly normal apart from the fact i'm aging <laughs> we all know what's happening oh well it's great i mean in a way it's great to hear you say that because that's just a natural sort of wear and tear isn't it really yeah yeah <laughs> but but really i mean it must have been frustrating for you um you know during this period because it evidently cut down i mean you couldn't be doing extensive tours i mean I mean, well, I couldn't, I couldn't play. Well, exactly. Uh, I, I, I was thinking that, Andy, that it must have curtailed your completely your musical activities. You know. Well, I could, you know, for the first year or so, I was really struggling because I was on. They gave me an awful lot of drugs to, you know, I had to have anti sort of um, what do you call it? I, you, you, when you take somebody else's blood cells, really, you have to have this. Uh, drug that would so to stop your your system fighting the new system coming in, and so and I had I was on quite a few different drugs, steroids, and all sorts of shit they were giving me really, and I could my hands were like really bad, really painful, arthritic, and I couldn't play that well, and I had to re relearn a lot of things um, in that. Each, you know, because I couldn't play a very good vibrato at that stage, so I had to relearn a kind of different vibrato without hanging my thumb on the back of the neck of the guitar. Um, and, you know, it was hard work, really, I think. Uh, but I just kept on seeing this image of Django Reinhardt, who only had two fingers to play with, and it kind of got me through. I thought, well, if he can do it, I can find a way of doing it. And I did. And my arthritis got better. Uh, it got less painful, although I still have pain in my hands. Uh, but it, nothing like what I had. And so I eventually got it back. And then, you know, I had to rethink about where I was going to go from there, you know. And I basically had to build my strength up. Um and start, you know, getting back into music. And that all sort of culminated in um, uh, the show last year. Yeah. You know, that was me coming back and saying, I'm back, and, you know, thank you, everybody, for supporting me. Briefly now, what does the future hold for Camel? You've got these dates in March. We're looking forward to those. Um, what about an album, Andy? Well, I'm working on that. I have been working on that. I was working on an album last year and wrote quite a few pieces. Den and I, a drummer, uh, Denis Kamar, we wrote uh, quite a few pieces together. And so as soon as this tour finishes, I'm going to be looking at what we wrote and seeing whether any of it still holds up. I, I am very critical of my work, and so I get bored with it very quickly. Uh, so what I thought was good, you know, in one period, and then listen back to it again in, in another period, uh, I could be, you know, I could say, no, this is uh, it's not holding my attention, or it's not very good. So um, 
looking at that and hopefully working on that over the summer and um, releasing something in the autumn and there may be possibly a tour in the autumn too. Um, so, you know, it's that's as far ahead as I can think at the moment, especially with Guy, you know, um, going through what he's going through and I'm not sure you know how he's going to be hopefully he's going to make a a, a good recovery and, and you know that because we talked about doing some things together as well so um, I, I don't know yes I know that. yes but it is um, you know it's exciting times for the fans of the band and uh, I'm sure also you'll pull in new fans as well you know it's it's nice to see the band back in action and well, it's nice. It's certainly nice to be back, Dave. And it's like, and you know, for the next, I'd like to push the boundaries a bit more for the next album. I always like to do um, something a little bit different, where some fans go, "What the hell is he doing there?" You know. Um, but you know, I, I also know because I've lived with Camel for quite a few years. I kind of know what is Camel now. You know, if I write a piece of music, I I can listen to it and go, that's a Camel tune, you know, or no, that's not a Camel tune. I can't play that, you know. It sounds like ABBA, you know, or whatever, because I write all sorts of stuff. So I, I'm quite selective of what I do, but I like to sort of go into new areas. I like to work with new people. I, I'm doing some stuff for um, Andy Davis from Stackridge. He's uh, a, a great artist. I, I love working with him. Nice man. Um, also Tom. I've you know, planning to do some stuff with Tom. And hopefully Geek. He was talking about you know, doing his solo album. Um, so I enjoy working on other people's material because I I can be I can look at it from a totally different point of view. So so hopefully there'll be a lot more recorded output from me in the future. So um, but I still love to tour. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get out again in the autumn. Oh, this is great. Well, look, we're so grateful to you, Andy, for your time today, and. Uh, We'll look forward to all those events in the coming months and uh, including the tour <coughs> here in the UK in the March. And we wish you all the very best for, for these projects in the, the year to come. Thanks, Dave. Nice talking with you. And um, yeah, thanks again. And um, hopefully see you on, on tour in March. Enjoy speaking to you.